Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Warlord Games official podcast. My name is Brad, and today is uh, we are going to visit uh, yet another game system. Uh, in the last short, sharp episode uh, of the cast, the ones that we're going to be sort of firing out rapid fire in the next couple weeks. Uh, of course, we talked about Gates of Antares with Tim. Today, we are going to visit another Warlord game, and we are going to continue to... Uh, go from author to author, game developer to game developer to members of the greater Warlord community uh, and talk about some of the games that we haven't revisited in a little while on this podcast. It's been one of those uh, bits of feedback that we always get, hey, can you go back and talk to, or hey, can you please talk about. We are going to take this opportunity to, uh, yeah, get out and talk to some of the uh, people in the Warlord community and talk about some of those games. And, uh, man, our guest today is... It's a treat to have him on again. He is one of the venerable game developers that uh, is in Warlord's uh, stable as far as uh, games go. Um, he is an independent game developer, but he has done many games for War Warlord. He's done several bolt-action books, including one of my personal favorites, Empire in Flames. Uh, he's partially responsible for the Dreadverse games and, of course, he is the developer behind Blood Red Skies, which is the game that we're going to largely be talking about today. Of course, I'm talking about the one and only Andy Chambers. Welcome back, man. Hello, hello. Venerable, huh? It's come to that at last. <laughs> well, you're not a dreadnought yet. <laughs> so. I don't know. Give it an, a year or so and then maybe. I was flipping through some old magazines for another game company, I have to say, uh, the other day, and I did find some pretty awesome pictures of you with uh, long hair and some pretty epic facial hair, and uh, it brought back fond memories of my childhood. I don't, I'm not sure what that says about my childhood, but um, yeah, it's great. You, uh, honestly, you're in good company. You're in good company. I, a lot of the clients that I work for, as you say, I do freelance game design, so I work for Warlord, and I do work for a lot of other clients as well mm -hmm. nine times out of ten when i first contact a client they'll pull up a photo of me with long hair and a pretty big lemmy style mustache yes. and go, this is you i remember you from when i was young and yeah. boy does that make me feel old yes yes i'm sure it does uh thankfully the photos of me uh from that time period are not in magazines for people to fondly look back upon but it, you know, the, this is the price for being um, prolific in the gaming industry and being, uh, you know, one of those developers that has been around for a long time and been around because you do great stuff. Uh, a lot of people, you know, move on and do other things, but you keep at it because you're good at it, and uh, we're enjoying the fruits of that labor these days with all the stuff you're doing for Warlord. So thank you. <laughs> Yes, yes. I, I, I do enjoy it. I do get a big kick out of it as well. And you want to know a frightening statistic? Yes. Um, this year, this year marks 30 years I've been doing professional games development. Wow. Because yep. I started back in 1990 at Games Workshop. Back oh. in the last century, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and... there, are, there are, in fact, plentiful gamers who weren't even alive when I started writing games. Yes. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that I I hate to date myself uh, alongside, but I'm I yeah, uh, and I do remember when you started appearing in White Dwarf, and it was in the early '90s. So yeah, there you go. So where did you did you start in the studio, or did you come up through other parts of the business? Um, originally, originally, 1990 marks when I started in the Games Workshop studio. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd worked at Games Workshop previously in mail order, um, mm-hmm. basically sort of like making up the numbers around Christmas time. Obviously, they get very busy around mm-hmm. then. So I did that in like 88 and 89. Um, and then kind of partially because of people I knew, contacts I knew from working in mail order, mm-hmm. uh, I got to hear about the fact that my favorite game at the time, Adeptus Titanicus, they'd put out these little one-man titans, mm-hmm. uh, as they were called later and as we know them now knights knights yeah uh, but there were there wasn't any rules for them unthinkable i know in this day and age right? they put out miniatures without rules i mean yeah. what was the thinking there uh, the thinking was that it was actually jervis johnson was um, off having a bit of a sabbatical and hadn't written the article before he'd left so being a industrious little landy and playing a lot of adeptus titanus at the time i made up some rules i wrote them up like wrote a, a white dwarf article Mm-hmm. Uh, I took a great deal of care to kind of mimic the style of White Dwarf at the time. So there's little quotes and bits mm-hmm. of color text and things like that. Uh, and I submitted that into the studio. And they, they were sufficiently taken with that. They, they brought me in for quotation marks here a couple of weeks to finish off the article. Mm-hmm. And uh, I spent the next 14 years working at Games Workshop. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so many people I've talked to uh, who worked for the great company at one point or another um, have similar experiences. Um, yeah, I got in by going to a grand tournament and playing board games with the guys and was brought in through sales. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Shockingly, they paid me to talk all day. Who would have thunk? Um, but let's let's move on. It's your superpower, Brad. Oh, it's your superpower. Let's not go there. Uh, but I guess my question is, we talked to Alessia recently about his um, his process in developing games. But it, as part of that, we talked to him about his gaming history and sort of how he came up. And, of course, we've talked to Rick Priestley about where he started as well. Um, Adeptus Titan- Titanicus was not your first game. Um, I think we have mentioned this before, but what was your sort of beginnings in the gaming industry? Like, what what got you into gaming as a whole? Oh, God. Um, when I was very young, mm-hmm. I was going through this recently. I see somebody uh, sent me some questions. The very first games I used to play were, um, like, setting up little plastic army men in the back garden, mm-hmm. firing matchstick cannons at them. Um, but if you want to go to rules, it would be airfix rules. Because um, mm-hmm. we used to collect, you know, 172nd scale airfix kits. Mm-hmm. And like kids do, kind of then wondered what to do with them, having mm-hmm. put them together. Uh, and at the time, airfix put out like a, a little hardback book of rules, very short, very simple rules. Mm-hmm. And um, we used to play those and, well, try to understand them, basically. Yeah. Uh, they weren't complicated. That's the funny thing. But there again, we were very young. Um, the mo- first serious war games rules I played were uh, Selwig, Southeast London Warlord games, Middle Earth rules, which were obviously based on the works of Tolkien. So yeah. orcs and goblins and, you know, Rahirim and all the rest of it. Uh, and they really were complicated. And we struggled to understand them, but it eventually got our heads around them because we were a little bit older at that point. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of where it started out from. And after that, I started getting into um, science fiction gaming and gaming rules in particular. A couple of sets of rules called Encounter 1 and Encounter 2, very creatively. Yeah, exactly. Which were uh, like Starship Combat, <laughs> theme emerging there, mm-hmm. and boarding actions. 
<laughs> theme emerging mm-hmm. there as well. So, um, and I, actually, I still have those booklets to this day. I managed to hold on to them over all the years because, um, and the, 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 the Middle Earth rules have actually got my various adaptations to put um, different extra weapons and things in the back of them that I, I wrote in, in nice. pencil. Mm-hmm. In, in very sort of like eight year old Andy um, handwriting. I, it's a lot neater than the mine is now. I was going to say, <laughs> as a primary school thing. teacher, which one's neater? Mm hmm. <laughs> Honestly, man, uh, we moved house in December. We've actually bought a place now. And because we finally bought a place, I managed to get some bookshelves up and I've unpacked boxes, which have literally been packed up for, in some cases, 20 years. Mm-hmm. So all kinds of things have been emerging into the light of day that I have not seen in decades. And one of the things I found is, hey, do you remember Brad, back in the 90s before everybody had everything on electronic media mm-hmm. when we actually had to physically write things down? Yes. I have folders full of stuff I wrote down, apparently. Yeah. Uh, so I've been going through that and marveling about how good my handwriting was back then. I had Practices, a um, but... I had a notebook that I put all my grand tournament army list ideas in for years and years and years. Uh, yeah. I found yeah. that recently. It is terrifying. My shorthand <laughs> in university and what I was thinking about putting into army lists. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I'm glad I lost that in the divorce, and I'm not sure where it went, but um, I did I did enjoy reading rereading that once, and then it never came back to the light of day. Um, but that said, I, I am looking at a bookshelf much like the one you're describing, with many, many uh, wonderful moments of history. And I guess uh, that brings me to my next question. Have you revisited any of those games now that you've uh, sort of pulled them out? I know that uh, a lot of us have a lot of free time at home these days, um, and I've pulled out a couple of uh, the classics, and I've just flipped through. I haven't put anything on the tabletop, but um, I have reread some rules, and my God, <laughs> in the 80s, games weren't exactly streamlined. Um, no. no, no. It's funny. That, that's kind of one of the things that's always motivated me through my career mm-hmm. was getting into gaming, um, discovering it was generally like hard work and not very satisfying to play mm-hmm. games uh, and trying to write games that were satisfying and fun to play right. and that was one of the reasons i liked adeptus titanicus so much when i first ran across it was it was an entire game in a box everything you needed was right there right which i thought was brilliant you mm-hmm. know again that was an innovation back then people didn't do that it was like oh you have bought something now go and buy another thing but yeah. that was a whole game in a box uh, and it was relatively straightforward, and it was fun. It was and great, it was yeah. yeah. Titanicus was an um, awesome game. Yeah, so it, it kind of set the bar for me, quite a high bar, I think, overall, because Jervis did a lovely job on that game, mm. um, as bespeaks by the fact that they, they've they've resurrected it recently. Yep. And I always kind of like aspire to bring that kind of, it's fun, you know, it's relatively easy to learn. I, I've failed this on a number of times, sorry folks, but trying to make things relatively easy to learn uh, and just let people have fun with games because really you, you don't want your rules to be a barrier overall. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they, they should be, you know, a, a nice easy slip and slide into having a good time with your friends. Exactly. With your clothes on. Yeah, yeah exactly. But, I mean, that's something that Warlord does pretty well um, most of the games that warlord puts out are games that you could you could pick up and you could say have a, a a fun fast gaming experience you can pick them up quickly you can get most of the basics down and play a game 
pretty in pretty short order. You don't have to, you know, take a, uh, a community college course on how to play a particular game like you might have had in the '80s. But you, um, you always have. But they also have that uh, tactical complexity. Um, and I do want to circle back now to what you were just saying about making games that are fun. Because the last time we spoke, you were here talking about Dread. And though you did most of the work on Strontium Dog, um, well, 50% of the work on Strontium Dog, um, and then you um, w- helped out with Dread, um, I mm-hmm. recently played three games of Dread uh, where I mm-hmm. took two judges against Max Bubba's gang from uh, Strontium Dog. And my oh, God, was that fun. It was so good. Uh, yeah. That, that, oh, the, that's cool. The game plays brilliantly. And the fact that the, the 2000 AD characters are interchangeable like that between Strontium Dog and Judge Dredd was just ace fun. It was just so much good. It was great. I set up a, a, a city board with buildings and cars and dumpsters and... Mega City One came alive on my tabletop. It was fantastic. So, well oh, done. It was a lot of fun. Um, it, it it was a pretty easy roll from Strontium Dog into Judge Dredd. You know, mm. they're, they're very similar on many levels. They're they're kind of skirmish gunfight games uh, in a sci-fi setting. So there's a lot of commonality in the first place. But it was always one of our objectives was to make them kind of so that you could play across both games um, straightforwardly without any changes to the rules, mm-hmm. um, which is something that I have noticed the the players are, are very, very happy with. Uh, yes. They really like it. Partially, I think, because it's it you know saves you from having to learn another set of rules, mm-hmm. uh, which, as a designer, is, is interesting information for me. And kind of obvious when you think about it. Of course, nobody really wants to set aside more brain space for learning yet another set of rules. Mm-hmm. It's true, uh, and but it it bulks sorry it bulks out the 2000 AD universe in a really fun way to all of a sudden have all of the dread characters as well, um, which is just great. I mean, it just it takes that game and just blows it out into you know exponentially. Uh, the the yeah. opportunities that you can put on the table. Perfectly, yeah. Perfectly canonical as well because Judge Dredd and Strontium Dog do indeed cross over in the comic strips. Right. You know, Johnny Alpha shows up and attempts to arrest Judge Dredd at one point and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff. So uh, you, you've got a legitimate excuse there. And we even put in a card That's for right. uh, introducing Wolf and uh, Johnny Alpha into your Judge Dredd game as time traveling bounty hunters appear. That's right. uh, In fact, I even flipped that card when we played. Uh, That was my Meg City 1 card, or uh, my Meg card. And, yep, we decided I would shuffle and grab another one because uh, I didn't have my Johnny painted, and we wanted to have everything beautifully painted for the tabletop. But, uh, yeah, it was was great. Um, Boing came up. Uh, I mean, you just name it. All my favorite parts of uh, reading Dread Comics as a kid – Appeared in these games and it was yeah it was fantastic. I just need to paint a lot of gangers now, but yeah. <laughs> Do we know if we're going to see more uh, dread characters and personalities that maybe aren't in the book as it is? Uh, you'd need to talk to Paul about that exactly. Uh, okay. There are a few more things in the pipeline. I know that we've done stats for and so on. There you go. Most of them, as with Strontium Dog, we've covered most of them in the book though. You have, yes. So it's more a case of seeing what, what gets fulfilled out of the book more than anything else. Mm-hmm. There is obvious stuff um, 
like the Dark Judges and so on. But I know Paul's particularly keen to do like um, discrete sets mm-hmm. uh, of additional stuff, like uh, Apocalypse War is one that's definitely on the cards. I know nice. that much. So that we can get soft judges in there and bad sweepers and stuff like that. Brilliant. Oh, that'll be great. Well, let's um, let's let's shift gears a little bit because it's 20 minutes in and we still haven't talked about what we were supposed to be talking about today, which is of oh, course, yeah, the, yeah the, the the game that we were hinting at earlier when we were talking about your initial gaming loves of um, Star Starfighter and Starship combat, um, except this time from a more historical stance, Blood Red Skies. So um, in the last year, we've seen quite a lot of things come out for Blood Red Skies, including jets and the linking to the Korean War. But we've also seen the Airstrike uh, additional PDF that you can get for free from the Warlord site. Um, I would like to turn you loose and tell us all the wonderful things about Blood Red Skies that have been out, because I'm sure I'm only scratching the surface. (laughs) <laughs> You're asking me to try and remember Waller's release schedule now, aren't you? Um, pop quiz. We it's pop quiz. It's been an ongoing um, push forward on uh, Blood Red Skies in general. Yeah, Airstrike mm. was an important book for me because we've done the Battle of Britain starter set, which mm-hmm. introduces the rules. And again, it's, it's that ideal of everything you need to play in a box. Right. You know, with six aircraft aside and clouds and markers and chits and dice and all the rest of it and the rules presented in a fairly short format fashion in three little booklets to make them easier to get your head around in theory what airstrike represented for me was not only an opportunity to add more stuff to the game uh, but to actually sort of like do a rules compendium put those three booklets together into Mm -hmm. one source and explain them a little bit further after seeing kind of like what tripped people up and what the feedback had been since the starter set got released. So uh, it's it's a it's a big all thing to all men. And one of the things that delighted me about Airstrike book coming out has been how many players have gone on their blogs or what have you and said, you know, do you need this book? And said, yeah, actually, it, it, it's kind of really good. Um, it's an essential supplement in a way, right? Because it includes all of the core rules explain better thank you andy um but then expanded on with attacking air, air bleh, doing air to ground and air to sea attacks mm-hmm. with bombers and torpedo bombers and all the rest of it flak and of course it's got the korean war stuff in for jets as well mm-hmm. so th- there's a lot of extra material in there uh, which i think has made it a fairly worthy kind of like step forward for the blood red sky system as a whole yeah. we are now in the throes of making up, putting together another starter set uh, based around the Battle of Midway for you nice. American people. That's me. Uh, which was originally going to be ooh, kind of like July, August this year, but obviously situation with being what it is with the, the COVID mm-hmm. infarction, um, that'll be put back a little bit. But that that's in train on the way, models being done, rules are written already. So nice. um, yeah, it's, it's surging along forward. And Alongside that, there have been ongoing, you know, squadron releases and more aces coming out. That's right. We've been looking to do uh, more stuff coming through direct sale in the future. Because mm-hmm. when we do a box set, there's obviously this big commitment there, both in terms of the, the actual sort of studio work required to do that, but also for retailers to sort of find right. shelf space for an ever-expanding range, which both myself and Paul know from our days in Games Workshop, there comes a point 
that doesn't work anymore. They start having to make decisions and say, mm. well, we won't carry those anymore because there's no room, like literally physically no room on my shelf for it. So that, that, that tends to be a kind of diminishing return on the more and more boxes that you do. So the, the fact that uh, we'll want to do, go to doing direct sales for some stuff is actually really good from my perspective because it means, for example, we've been talking about doing some more Korean War jets. There wasn't any plan to do that originally, but now mm -hmm. we're looking at doing, uh, oh God, Panthers and Shooting Stars. That's the two that we're looking nice. at getting done later on this year. Mm -hmm. uh, as well as potentially other nationalities for the world war ii stuff as well you know we might finally get to see some italians and some french for nice. example yeah Oops. so it's and of course the big thing i should mention as well to all your eager listeners out there yes. as well is that uh, we've been changing over to using resin for the aircraft as yes. well rather than metal uh, we had some hard plastic but obviously that's a big commitment a lot of expense involved mm -hmm. in making tooling up molds for hard plastic but in the case of resin, um, Wool has managed to perfect its spin cash resin processes now. And we've been getting aircraft out in resin, and they're lovely. They yes. are just perfect. Yeah, and they are a lot easier to get to stay on stands. Um, having tried to stick metal models on stands, sometimes they don't stick as well, or because of the weight, I would say. Um, mm. Maybe mm. not as much um, with Blood Reds guys. I'm thinking of maybe slightly larger models, but with, um, with, with resin, it tends to be a lighter material, so it tends to uh, be a little more uh, forgiving when you're assembling, at least for my... My well, the, the, the aircraft Blood Red Skies are overwhelmingly one-piece casting, so assembly is not such an issue. But we do have in Blood Red Skies, we use the, the little tilting bases exactly. to designate your advantage level. Mm -hmm. And metal was never a happy uh, medium to use yeah. on top of those. You had to weight the bases, really, or use the base extensions that were made for it, which, again, were a little bit awkward. So resin is just perfect for that because nice. you get these lovely single-piece castings which just sit on your advantage base nicely. Mm. So that, that's been a big step forward, I feel, overall. Nice. Yeah, I that's what I was trying to think of how to explain the base when I was talking about assembly, because they do I do know that most of the planes come in one piece. Um I did say for those wondering, um that Blood Red sorry, that um Airstrike for Blood Red Skies is a PDF. It is a PDF on the website. It is for sale. It is, I believe, ten pounds as a PDF. Um, but for those of you who are like me and want the actual hard book in your hand, um, you can get it when Warlord resumes shipping of products, uh, and that is twenty pounds. So, um, but yeah, you get a, as Andy said, a mountain of material in that book, and it is well worth it. Yes, it's quite it's quite the chunk actually. I'm very happy with how the book turned out. Uh, oh yeah, we managed to cram in a load of. Um cards at the back and so forth mm -hmm. and we put in cards for targets on a gatefold cover on the book which is one reason you might want it nice. uh, a bunch of new scenarios as mm -hmm. well uh the original starter set has five scenarios we've got that up to 12 in uh, blood red skies oh, wow. airstrike uh, including stuff for you know attacking all those ground and sea targets mm -hmm. and so on so yeah yeah i'm very happy with it overall and it seems to have had a good reception as well which is always uh, gratifying <laughs> I have seen a lot of people who have been playing the jet version, uh, MIG Alley, as they've been calling it, um, out of the mm. um, Korean supplement. And as you say, those rules are an airstrike. Um, have you fine-tuned that at all, or are you happy with the way the jet engines started with 
Um, I know that when we talked before, you were still in the developing of the rules for that. Uh, yeah, that that's it's one of those things where you don't necessarily sort of design something with a particular objective in mind, like jets, but the adaptation seems to be working well. Nice. Uh, feedback's been good. A lot of people seem to have picked up on it. They love their jets. We're actually talking about maybe extending to slightly later uh, as well, which really will start to stretch the rules mm -hmm. uh, by doing some Vietnam era jet aircraft at some point Ooh. as well. Sorry, I yeah. just I got I, I, <laughs> my ears just perked up. Vietnam, you say? Oh, hello. Uh, are we going to see some yeah. phantoms perchance? Well, yes, yes. That's that's kind of the objective is to to do a phantom Ooh. and a mix seventeen, mm -hmm. I think, uh, and do a, a very similar kind of like like the uh, like the Mig Alley box set. So you just get a couple on each side and Ooh. put that out. But uh, we'll see when that happens. Uh, had some uh, happy volunteers not at all fighting with each other about how to do the rules <laughs> and uh, nice. i've kind of left it in the, in their court for now to push around and tell me what they think uh, they should work like mm -hmm. because obviously we, we start to make some fairly big departures by the time we get to vietnam you've got things like uh, heat seeking missiles start coming in mm -hmm. afterburners start coming in big feature on the F4 Phantom. Mm -hmm. By the way, do you know an F4 Phantom in 1-200 scale is huge? Yes. Absolutely monstrous. Yeah. yeah. They're giant aircraft. This is one of the things I've enjoyed about Bloodworth Skies, actually, is you finally get an idea of how big aircraft are in relation to each other. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you see photos of like, oh, here's a single-engine fighter. Mm -hmm. Here's another single-engine fighter. And your brain just kind of assumes they're about the same size. Yes. They are not the same no, size No, they are not at all. At all. Uh, I grew up on U.S. military bases or around U.S. military bases in uh, in Japan, and um, one of the military bases that we spent a lot of time on was the Air Force Base, and um, so I, I saw a lot of Tomcats in my day, and they were massive, but then, of course, um, we had the annual air show, and so the Phantoms would come out, and which is why I got very excited when you mentioned that era. But, um, yeah, they were I, – I assumed that's how big because they were the planes that I grew up seeing. I assumed that yeah. was the size. Then I went to the Smithsonian, uh, and, and I saw the World War II planes, and I went yeah. – you know, it's like the clown <laughs> carification. I went the other way from you where I could not yeah. believe how small they were. Uh, compared oh my to God, the... they fought in these things. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> no wonder they could take off and land from aircraft carriers. They're tiny. Yeah. 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 Mm. Yep, that's true. And yeah, it's a real education. It is. Oh, well, Andy. As I said, we have spoken to Alessio recently about how, how he, as a game developer, uh, interacts with his with his audience, the community. Um, and he, like you, is a freelancer. So you're almost serving two masters at once because, I mean, technically Warlord's your customer, um, but then Warlord's mm -hmm. customers are the ones who are buying your game and playing it. So there is that, that interesting relationship for you. Um, how do you, or how have you found, now that Blood Red Skies has been out for well past a year now, um, God, it's, is it almost, is it a year and a half? It's more like two. Wow. It's almost two. Now that the game has well and truly has its sea legs and is running, um, 
how are you finding interacting with the community? Um, how are you taking on feedback um, when building towards future supplements? How does that process as a game developer work for you? I'm curious because I know that every game developer sort of does it differently, and you are very similar to Alessio. You are to Blood Red Skies what Alessio is to Bolt Action. Um, what's your relationship with the fan base and how that works with the evolution of the game? Um, this is where one, one of the areas where modern technology has um, made positive differences in how easy it is to communicate with the community at large mm. uh, and to find, what's the best word for them, advocates. Mm. Yeah, that's what we used to call them back at Games Workshop, um, for different different approaches and different gaming systems and so on. Basically, kind of super fans uh, right. who are really into it and passionate enough about it that they have a burning desire to tell you what they want out of a game. Mm -hmm. And you can find these really easily now because of the internet. Yes. Uh, back in the day, you know, it used to be snail mail or nothing. Mm -hmm. But uh, now they can be in your ear every day, which is kind of like a blessing and a curse, as you might imagine. Yes. So one one of the things that you have to learn as a games designer is to kind of set your commitment level to how much to engage directly with that, how much simply to observe mm -hmm. uh, and listen to what's said. Because, you know, it's Schrodinger's cat. Any time that you interact with it, you change it by definition. Right. So you kind of have to balance off a little bit and mm -hmm. let people do their thing, let people discuss stuff and come to their own conclusions without jumping in immediately it's very human instinct sort of like jumping and go no 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 you got it wrong um or oh my god i never thought of that as the case may be <laughs> but yep. uh, some of that and then trying to give some guidance and try and give some feedback on where you're going with things what's coming up in the future how people feel about that how they'd like to see that done you said i serve two masters i don't i serve one master i serve the players nice warlord games are my client and, you know, they pay the bills and so forth. But I don't serve them on that kind of a level, mm. nor do they want me to. What sure. they want me to do is to find out what the players want and do my best to give it to them. And I say I've got a tremendous set of tools now compared with, I say, before we start this interview, this year marks 30 years I've been doing professional games design. That's right. Back at the beginning, we had nothing, absolutely nothing to get player feedback. Over the years, I managed to develop that a little bit because Games Workshop had a monthly magazine, White Dwarf, which mm -hmm. I wrote for regularly. And via that medium, I could actually put things out there, put test rules out there and, and get some feedback. But it was very slow and very um, kind of self-limiting. There's only so many people who are going to like physically write you a letter right. to talk about your game. So it's a bit of a self-selecting audience on that front. So you're not Whereas, getting a true representation of the demographic because you're getting a slice bit. of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're getting a slice of it of the, the guys who are happy to sit down at a typewriter or, you know, use their penmanship or what have you to write in via snail mail mm -hmm. or indeed to even engage with the postal service. So what you get instead now is a lot a lot broader kind of a, a community talking about things. For example, you will get people who say, you know, oh, well, I'm, I'm really just into collecting the models and painting and so forth. You wouldn't hear from those guys back in the day because why would they even bother saying that? Because right. they're just interested in collecting the models. Why would they write in and tell you, I'm just interested in collecting the models? But when it comes to uh, a Facebook group, which is what I have for Blood Red Skies, we have the Blood Red Skies Ready Room, mm -hmm. uh, you'll actually get more of a cross-section of people talking there 
uh, different levels. People, one of the things you'll often get, of course, is people who want more, uh, as games designers call it, granularity. Do you know mm-hmm. what that means, Brad? Uh, it, detail? It, Slowness? Yes. Charts? Yes, yes. To, Yes to both of those things, yes. basically. Sorry. All of those things. Yeah, it, it's it's more grit, more grit in the system, mm-hmm. more detail. Um, you know, delving deeper into the sort of historical norms or what have you, and and trying to show them or the little variations. And you'll always get a segment of players who want more of that because that's mm-hmm. what interests them the most. They're into history, right. uh, and they want to get it right. Then you'll get a section of players who aren't so interested in that sort of thing. They just want to be able to have a game that's quick and fun and is kind of maybe historically representative. And you'll get others who just want a game. It doesn't even have to be historically representative as far as they're concerned. They're, they're fine with it as long as you throw some dice and things happen. Right. So you, you get far more of that cross-section and you can try and like balance off the desires between the different ends of that. Hmm. So, yeah... We, it's a great time, really, to uh, be a games designer because you have that facility. Now, at the same time, you've got to watch yourself because you can get the tail wagging the dog. You can get the community actually dictating the course of the game, mm-hmm. which, while you want some of that, yeah. because of what I just said about the fact that not all players want the same thing, right. you have to be a little bit wary about it because it's very easy to fall into, like, the most vociferous players dictating how the game goes. And mm-hmm. that that's where your bit of professionalism has to come in, and you have to balance their desires against the desires of people who don't write in to tell you exactly what they want every other day. <laughs> yes, to make sure that it's not just the squeaky wheel that's getting the grease. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's why I say uh, you also have to take a little bit of a hands-on approach because you will scare people off. If the games designer is in there talking about stuff every day and going blah, 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 people won't criticize or only some people will criticize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people won't won't feel confident enough to actually uh, write their thoughts down because, well, you know, they're not professional games designers. What do they know sort of thing? Yeah. Uh, and the fact is they do know what they want out of a game. It's, it's just a question of teasing it out of them, which is often done by leaving them alone, frankly, and letting them talk. Yeah, exactly. But you can always lurk. Absolutely. Lurking is is definitely one of my prerequisite skills these days. I just Uh, imagine you with that haircut and the the lemmy mustache with the verb lurking. and yeah. (laughs) Sorry. That's right. Perched in a corner somewhere, just leering over them all. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And one of the things we touched on is things like FAQs. Yes. And it's a great resource for that sort of stuff about seeing what actually is a frequently asked question. Because that's what FAQ means, boys and girls. It's that's not just right. questions. It's frequently asked questions, mm-hmm. i.e. more than once at least. So it's a good place for picking up on that kind of material as well and seeing what needs addressing. And if I'm honest with you, Brad, seeing how the players um, deal with it themselves, seeing what they think the rule is, right. rather than necessarily what you intended the rule to be. Right. Because at the end of the day, if 80%, 80% of people play it you know, differently to how you imagined it being played, Who's right, you yeah. or them? Well, and if it works either way, folks. right? Absolutely. There's a lot of stuff in games design which comes down to a call, you know, left or right, black or white. And if people are going one particular way, then when it comes to the FAQ, you go the way that the majority of people go because that's clearly the more logical path. Right. However you started out with it, they've shown you that that's the way they think it works. And that's the way it works now because that's the way they think it works, you know. 
it's consensus reality in a very real form. Yeah, that's right. You get that instant uh, gratification of democracy right right there. Yep. Yep. The people and have spoken. And you get to be a dictator at time and go, it's not a democracy. I say it works this way. Yes. So, uh, yes, lots of fun to be had there. Yeah. Uh, and I put, should put a specific shout out at this point to the guy who runs the Blood Red Scholars Ready Room, Ken Nat. He's a, a constant worm in my ear and a pain in my ass, but also a great, great help to me in developing Blood Red Skies. A lot of our advances have been thanks to him. Uh, Roger Garish as well, who I worked on Judge Dredd with and does the Doctor mm-hmm. Who game for Warlord. Uh, he's really into aircraft. It's his secret, secret love, it really is. Is it? Uh, particularly jet. Yeah, yeah, particularly jets, as it turns out. Yeah, um, nice. He supplied a lot of the information for MIG Alley for us, uh, and he will probably end up supplying a lot of the information for Vietnam as well. And there's also a, a podcast, <laughs> a rival podcast for you, Brad. Uh-oh. The Lead, the lead Pursuit podcast mm-hmm. uh, for Blood Red Skies. Uh, it's been terrific. That's Douglas Glover and his friends. That's right. Ex-military types, they are. Flyers themselves, so mm-hmm. you can imagine they have opinions on things. But they've been absolutely terrific. And uh, if anybody's into Blood Red Skies, I recommend their podcast. They've interviewed me once or twice as well, and Ken, for that matter, recently. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they have, God bless them, been working on, um, I don't think it's ready yet. There's a piece of software on Steam called Tabletop Stim- Simulator. Yes. It's a simulator there. Tabletop Simulator. They've been developing a Blood Red Skies version of that recently nice. since we're all stuck indoors mm-hmm. uh, with the assistance of other people out of the community. And this is the fantastic thing. You know, all this is running... I have not instigated this myself. Warlord has not instigated it. It's the fan base that's doing this, mm-hmm. the players so that they can play with other people and continue to um, promote the game, which is a terrific thing from my perspective, doing my job for me. That's right. Well, Lovely. it means that we can play games sitting in our living room by ourselves, but still play with other people across the world. It's fantastic. Yep. Yep. Um, and still play the actual game. And you're not... You know, it's not a video game based on the game. You're playing the real game online. Um, it's the future, apparently. Um, I, I personally <laughs> like throwing dice bags at people and, you know, yelling. So <laughs> that doesn't really work very well for me. I might break my computer. However, uh, it, given the state of what is going on in the world right now, just the fact that, yeah. you know, the fan base is, is engaging with the game like that. As you say, you didn't have to do it. You didn't instigate it. It wasn't your idea. Someone else is doing it. But people are wanting to play your game or the game that you created so badly that they, um, they're they figuring out a way of playing it online, which is fantastic. And yeah, that I mean, that that is, I think, the ultimate compliment that people are so keen to play that when they can't, they're figuring out alternative methods to play it from home, which is awesome. Yes, it offers some great advantage from my perspective as well, because it also means I can play test stuff as well without necessarily having to get together a physical game and so on, which is terribly, terribly useful to me, I must say. Nice. Well, Andy, um, I have already gone past the allotted time that you promised us today. Um, Is there anything else you want to tease before you roll out today, or are you happy to say adieu? But no, my pleasure. Thank you for talking to me today. Uh, it's it's always nice to actually hear another human being. It is. 
And it is a pleasure to hear from you, sir. Uh, please come back again soon. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure we'll have. Uh, since you do have your fingers in many warlord pies, I'm sure we will have you on again. It is always a pleasure uh, to have you on. I chuckle, uh, you know, pretty much unendingly through these things when you're on, um, and it's always a good entertainment and a good time. So thank you. All right. Best to you and yours. Hope you all stay safe. Yes. And remember, wash your hands. Yes. Amen to that. And guys at home, thank you so much for listening. And as Andy says, please wash your hands. Um, Look for another one of these episodes coming short and sharp. uh, Sorry, short, sharp episodes. uh, Hot on the heels of this one. We're going to try and keep firing these out. um, Maybe once a week, maybe more often, maybe less often. Uh, depending on timetables and when we can get people together and get them on. Um, We do have the next couple of guests lined up. Uh, It is, I'm not sure which will be on next, so I'm not going to say anyone's name. I did tease Andy in the last episode. So, um, yes. Guys, thank you so much for all the feedback uh, and all the kind words and the messages you've been sending uh, me personally about the Warlord cast and about the other gaming casts that I do, mostly about Warlord games. Um, If you have feedback for this podcast, please contact me um, through the contact page of that podcast. It's called Cast Dice, C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E. If you go to Facebook and search up Cast Dice, you will find the Cast Dice podcast. That is me. If you message there, um, please, that Cast Dice is the podcast network that this podcast is put out through. Um, so please contact us there if you have any suggestions for uh, future episodes or anything you would like to hear in this sort of freeform jazz uh, session of podcasting uh, time period for the Warlord cast. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for listening. Uh, we really do appreciate it, and we really do hope that in these difficult times, you are safe and you are well. Have a good night. Goodbye.